Good morning, and welcome to episode 1401 of Effectively Wild, the baseball podcast on Fangraphs.com, brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Sam Miller of ESPN, along with Ben Lindbergh, the ringer. Hello, Ben. Hello. I've been gone for a while. I've been gone for about a week. I don't know a lot of what happened. Uh, you want to tell me? Just like all of it? <laughs> on the podcast or in the sport that we talk about? In the sport. I did. Yeah. I actually have listened to episode 1400. Oh, okay. Well, that's the important thing. As long as you're up to date on Effectively Wild. I don't know. A bunch of baseball happened, but you now have a few days where no baseball happens, or at least no Major League Baseball, so you can catch up. Good timing. Yeah. That's what I'm going to do. Yeah. I was away too with no Wi-Fi or anything for a few days. Wow. It was a holiday week. So Did you go to the happens. woods? Yeah. Neil Woods. Mm-hmm. Recurring character in this podcast. The woods. <laughs> yep. Every now and then. These are in like uh, boy, Canada, Western Canada? Not that woods this oh. time. Yeah. This was just an upstate New York woods. We have woods here too. I see. All right. Yep. Uh, okay. Well, anything <laughs> going on? You want to talk? I have some stuff. Do you have some stuff? Yeah, I have a couple things. All right. Yeah. Should I go first? Let me go first with my one because I've been waiting. I almost made you jump back on the podcast last week after we finished <laughs> recording because I I realized that I had forgotten to tell you this. Do you remember when we talked about how I praised you for this phrase that you used that I loved so much called a uh, bullpen poochie? Yes. Um, which was uh, in reference to Josh Hader as the Poochie, of course. I, we didn't spell this out the first time we talked about this, but Poochie was a character on The Simpsons, mm-hmm. a fictional character within a show on The Simpsons where every time he wasn't, he was so popular, was it, that every time he wasn't on screen, everybody would just ask, where's Poochie? Yes, that, that was correctly? the idea that the, the network executives wanted him to be where's so compelling. Poochie? Exactly. And so Hader, Josh Hader in the playoffs last year was a bullpen Poochie where mm-hmm. whenever he was not in the game, you were thinking, where is he? Is he warming up? When's he coming in? How many outs can he get? Is he available? Is he is he stretching? Uh, you right. know, so on and so forth. And you told me that, that if actually you think Jeff made up that term, which is you agreed was a great term. I think that's true. I think he did it in the 1200s if I my Googling turns this up uh, mm-hmm. correctly. So bullpen Poochie, we've established that's a thing that we all like and that Jeff is responsible for, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Did you know the Rays have a bullpen poche? <laughs> His name is Colin Poche, and he is a left-handed reliever. Yeah. The Rays have a bullpen poochie. His name is actually bullpen poochie, kind of. <laughs> it's poche. It looks like it should be poche, which would be closer. Yeah, and in fact... Jeff discovered him too, <laughs> or at least he was the one who brought Colin Poche to my attention, if that's how you say it, because yeah. he did a post on him last June. And Wait, did he, he called... call him a bullpen poochie? I don't think so. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, I think that was maybe before he came up with that term, but he did bring Colin Poche to the internet's attention and called him the most unhittable arm in the minors. Uh, and these days he's pretty unhittable in the majors. Oh, I guess. dang it. I was going to ask, is he good? He yeah. is good. He has he has Josh Hader stats. He is in 15 and two thirds innings in the majors. He has struck out 14 batters per nine and he has walked one batter. It's yeah. 24 strikeouts per walk. He is the most unhittable arm in the majors mm-hmm. right now, which is basically the same joke you just made. Yep. So anyway, so I guess sometimes we make a joke about our friends who work for a team uh, being responsible for every move that that team makes. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to acknowledge that we're kind of doing that right now. But um, Poche was acquired before Jeff was acquired. Yes. He was, true. however, called up this year despite a 6.26 ERA. I don't suppose Jeff is the only person in the Rays organization willing to look past a minor league ERA uh, in favor of much stronger peripherals and even much better data than peripherals. But 
Yeah. I don't know. Maybe he just wanted a bullpen, Poochie. All right. I just wanted to bring that up. I have other things, but you can go now. Well, I should mention, since you just invoked the Is This Guy Good game, that one of our listeners created the Is This Guy Good game. It's uh, Corey Martin, who earlier developed Minor Draft. .ml. That was a site that you could use to create the minor league free agent draft, essentially, to draft your own minor league free agents and track their progress throughout the year. He has now come out with a sequel to that game, oh, which wow. is uh, Is This Guy Good? Oh, GQ. <laughs> and it is exactly what it sounds like. It's inspired by ah, episode 1375. You can choose to show his team. That's so, it's so humiliating <laughs> that I'm going to click show his team. No, I know yeah. this guy's team. It's just uh, an automated, it, it updates every day with the reliever stats. So you can go to the site and it will just give you a reliever and you can guess whether he's good or not. It's great. Oh, for one. I don't think there should be a skip option. I'll just throw that out. Oh, I know no. this one. Okay. Yeah. I think there are position player pitchers in there. I'm not sure there's an innings minimum, so maybe there are a couple tweaks that could be made, but I appreciate the effort, and we'll link to it if anyone wants to play at home. Chris, Ma- I just got Chris Mazza. Do you know that Chris Mazza in the- is in the majors? Nope. Chris Mazza, a year ago, Ben, was in the Pacific Association. One year ago, oh, right. he was in the Pacific Association. You, you just mentioned that to me the Now other day. he's in the majors. Yeah, uh, While at the same rise. time, one year ago, Brandon Phillips was in the majors, and now he's in the Pacific Association. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a big moment for the Pacific Association. Mm-hmm. Oh, my goodness. Dan Otero is a guy I should know. I've written more <laughs> about Dan Otero than everybody else in the world combined. Yeah. One article. My impression is that he is not so good right now. Dylan Moore. Isn't Dylan Moore? Dylan Moore is the Mariners shortstop who I drafted in the minor league free agent draft. <laughs> and now he's in here. Yes. We need a five-inning filter. Yeah, I think we need an innings with him. But, uh, but I don't know whether he's good or bad. <laughs> <laughs> you could guess that he's probably not good. I got it. And All right. Fact, I'm over 500. Era. I'm now yeah. at 63% and I'm stopping. I didn't stopping. mean to, to derail us and actually <laughs> play the game. Just letting you all know that you can play the game Great in an game. easy way. Yeah, oh, thank, thank you. Thank you for that, <laughs> yeah. Corey. One thing I wanted to mention is that Mike Trout, who homered twice on Sunday to close out the first half, quote-unquote first half, he finishes that fake first half with a 186 WRC+. Plus. That's a 301-453-646 slash line, and he is officially the best hitter in baseball. Not just the most valuable player, at least according to Fangraphs War, but the best hitter, too. He is pulled ahead of Cody Bellinger and Christian Yelich just in straight-up offense, let hmm. alone the rest. Incredible. So, you can come after Mike Trout. You can keep pace with Mike Trout maybe for a few months, but that's about it. After that, he is going to overtake you. And I wrote something to that effect recently, but we've been talking about that for years. That's impressive. I think that he managed to make up that ground. And also, I wanted to mention it in the context of this question so Jamie wrote in to say that he wanted to follow up on our email answer about what a player could do to have his number retired. He says it was basically taken as a given that, like Jackie Robinson, a number would be retired because of some sort of social barrier being broken. However, neither Ben nor Sam mentioned the only other number that is retired in one of the big four leagues, Wayne Gretzky's number 99, which was retired throughout the NHL just because he was awesome at hockey. What would Mike Trout have to do to get his number retired purely for being the greatest of all time? Would a player who hit a thousand homers get his number retired? That's kind of an interesting question. If Mike Trout retires as just the best baseball player ever, 
Would that be enough to get his number retired? No, I don't think it would be. I mean, clearly there have been players who were the best of all time before Mike Trout, and we didn't retire their numbers. And even, I think even, I think Babe Ruth, for his era, comparable to his peers, comparable to the game around him when he started doing the Babe Ruth thing, and really almost until the end, was Gretzky-like, and maybe more Mm -hmm. than Gretzky. He was, I mean, you know, Babe Ruth is probably the, maybe the, biggest sports outlier in a major sport that there's ever been Uh, and no one that I know of was leading a charge to retire his number so I guess there is theoretically we could keep raising the number um, of things that Mike Trout did or maybe maybe it's probably too late for Trout but let's say that somebody else came along and I don't know if a guy hit 1700 home runs in his career 1700 home runs (laughs) I don't know it's hard to say it's hard to say how we'd feel about that guy at all, but maybe. I don't know, though. It seems to me, especially once you've established that Jackie Robinson is your baseline, like, yeah, that's, that's well, tough. The practice of retiring numbers was not as common in Babe Ruth's era as it is now, I think. I, I think Lou Gehrig's number was retired shortly after he was retired, but I think that was because of the circumstances of Lou Gehrig and his illness more so than just Lou Gehrig being good. So I don't know if that practice actually existed at the time in any widespread way. So maybe if a Babe Ruth were to come along today, now that we've established that practice, it would be a little more likely for it to happen. But we haven't gone back and retired Babe Ruth's number retroactively, so... My dad gave me a, an answer that I think is correct, and it's I didn't bring it up because I it's a little uncomfortable to think about and to talk about. But I think that he's right, that if a ball player died on the field saving the life of somebody else that Mm. he would have his number retired and particularly if it was many people and you can imagine some scenarios that are uncomfortable to talk about and so let's change the subject (laughs) yeah okay well jamie the same guy who asked that question he wrote in with a follow-up on something we talked about hundreds of episodes ago and i think we are both always eager to revisit things that we said in the past so jamie said i was watching the yankees game yesterday and the announcers were discussing how Number 99 jerseys and jerseys for Judge are now seemingly as ubiquitous as number two jerseys for Jeter once were. This was what prompted his Gretzky question. But he says, this made me think about a discussion during the original Sam era, episode 759, at 16 minutes and 40 seconds, November 2015, regarding in what year Jeter jerseys would no longer be the plurality at Yankee Stadium. The emailer does actually mention Judge as well as Greg Bird as an example of a prospect who could break through, but it's just one item in a list of possibilities for who could break Jeter's mark. Sam said that with greater than 50% confidence, he thinks Jeter will be the Yankees' manager within nine years, which leads to a discussion of what Jeter will do in his post-playing career. Ben says that without a charismatic young superstar, it doesn't seem there's anyone likely to beat Jeter, although he does raise the possibility that a prospect could do it. Ben also raises the possibility that everyone who owns a Jeter jersey might die, which is very on brand for the podcast. Both of you recognize that there's a possibility of someone coming up and breaking through, though it wouldn't be possible to see him coming. Sam estimates it'll happen by 2029. Ben says 2030. I guess I just took the over. So what would you think about this question today? And is it surprising how quickly Judge has become the central figure of the Yankees? Do you think Jeter Scherzes would be more popular if he weren't doing things in Miami right now? 
So I don't know how to establish whether judge jerseys or jerseys are actually more common than Jeter's are now, but seems plausible. He is very popular, and I know he's been among the best-selling jerseys or maybe the best-selling jersey in recent years Mm league-wide. So that happened faster than we thought, and (laughs) we wouldn't have guessed that it would be Aaron Judge to do it. But yeah, seems like maybe that's happened already. Yeah, we might have underestimated the degree to which Derek Jeter's fame is. Well, so you remember how uh, Russell used to write about how surely there is a great deal of value to being the clubhouse chemistry guy in your clubhouse. But if you left, someone else would fill that role. That there there is a leader in every clubhouse. And just because you're the leader doesn't mean that Nobody else would step up and be the leader. Clearly, someone has to function in that role. It's very important someone functions in that role. But out of 25 adults, highly successful adults, uh, usually one of them will step up and do that. And, and maybe, just maybe, the replacement level for chemistry is actually quite quite high. And so mm-hmm. it's not your, you who's special, Brandon Inge. Sorry, Brandon Inge. To, but maybe just the role is an important role that someone mm-hmm. fills. And maybe Derek Jeter wasn't actually the transcendent superstar celebrity heartthrob etc maybe it's just that there's gonna be someone from new york in that role and unless you know unless everybody else kind of falls down on the job i certainly didn't feel that way at the time i mean to me the Derek jeter mystique was somewhat mysterious to me at the time didn't seem like it could be explained just by his city and probably still doesn't but Uh, It is incredible how quickly Aaron Judge has become, by my understanding, according to some market research, the biggest star in baseball, the most recognizable star in baseball. We always talk about Mike Trout and Bryce Harper, and why is Bryce Harper more popular? But Aaron Judge is, as I understand it, much more popular than either one of them. And I didn't see that coming. I don't don't know for sure that that's even a New York thing, but it seems like it probably is. Mm Mm-hmm. Maybe it's because of the Home Run Derby. Maybe we should talk about that. We're going to talk about that, but I've got some other things too. (laughs) Yeah, I, I do too. Actually, one more thing about Trout I wanted to mention. I noted in the outro the other day when you weren't here that your latest Mike Trout passing Hall of Famers article had gone up. And in June, he passed eight Hall of Famers. And I was wondering, because I'm sure you've looked ahead and planned out how the rest of the series will go, are you in like the the fattest part of the Trout passing Hall of Famers area right now? Like, is he right now passing Hall of Famers at a faster pace than he will for most of the rest of his career? I mean, at a certain point, obviously, it, it gets to be such rarefied territory that there just aren't that many Hall of Famers. So I would imagine that most Hall of Famers are clustered in the 70-ish war area where he's passing through right now. That is a great question. Let me check. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> it would make sense. That, yeah. I mean, there's not there's not going to be a lot of guys at 100. Right. And there's not going to be a lot of guys at 50. And it yeah. makes sense. So at, at some point, if you're still doing this so, series years from now, there will be months where he probably doesn't pass a Hall of Famer. I mean, so, someday what, he might just be number one. So then he yeah. won't be passing anyone. I'm just going to real quick rattle off some numbers. He started this year behind 75 Hall of Famers. Uh, Willie McCovey was 75th at 64.5, and we're only talking hitters here, mm-hmm. 64.5. So if you include Dave Winfield, who's 64.2, you have three in the 64s, one in the 65, and four in the 66s, and then three 
in the 67, six in the 68. So this was the month I just did. It was a very crowded month and it snuck up on me. My last few days were <laughs> frantic. And then three, five, six, zero, 71s, four, one, two, three, one, one, two, two, one, one, zero, one, two, one, one, zero, 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 zero. In fact, only one person between 80 six and 91 mm-hmm. um so yes yes it the the 68 looks like it is the fattest month in the boa concern no they don't put python in the python <laughs> but then we have it's going to be a very busy july is what i'm saying is mm-hmm. he's in fact what is he at right now i, I don't know i don't know either Wait he a just minute. hit a couple homers so as we record this it is july 7th and in this week uh, he's passed one this month only, uh, but mm-hmm. he'll probably end up passing. So he, I wrote eight last month. If he's worth one and a half war this month, he'll pass another um, eight. So this will be another, and then it should start to slow down. Okay. So you started it at the right time. Yeah. Man, at the wrong probably, time. Probably not <laughs> co- yeah. Not coincidental though, probably. Mm-hmm. There's a, a, I don't know if I mentioned this phenomenon after May, but there's this weird phenomenon where, so the whole point of this series, this premise is that, there is a leaderboard that Mike Trout is up among Hall of Famers in, and a lot of people think that this leaderboard has a lot of merit. So let's give proper credit to the people who he's passing, that they are not merely pawns for Mike Trout, the king. Well, I guess the king is a bad metaphor, but they're not simply, you know, secondary characters for Mike Trout to blow past. They are, in fact, great major leaguers. Let's appreciate how great it is, how great they are, so mm-hmm. that we can therefore properly uh, properly appro- appreciate how great Mike Trout is. And so pick a player, write maybe, I don't know, four to 700 words about that player, and like 370 of them are just glowing, gushing about how great the player is. It is basically a series of the best fun facts and the best testimonials that I could find about this player so that you really understand how this player that you never saw or maybe that you saw when you were very young or maybe that you've forgotten how great he was, how incredibly great he was. I'm determined to make you appreciate the greatness of Carlton Fisk, right? And then Mm -hmm. there's like 20 words at the end where it's like, this is why Mike Trout's ahead of him. And I get all these replies to this series that are angry at me because I'm not giving Eddie Murray enough credit. And the whole point of this article is how (laughs) great Eddie Murray is. I'm just going on and on about Eddie Murray. How many articles has this guy read about Eddie Murray in the last year? None. It's just me. I'm the whole market right now. I'm telling you how good Eddie Murray is. And he's very mad because I didn't, I don't know, say that Eddie Murray's also better than Mike Trout. So that's what happens when I write these articles. Mm -hmm. You want to ask me my favorite fun fact from this year's? (laughs) This one? Sure. What was it? Actually, I'm going to tell you right now. I This, this is not really even... Uh, well, episode 1322, Ben, you and Jeff talked about how many stolen bases Ricky Henderson would have if he were playing now. Remember uh-huh. that? Yeah. You concluded he'd steal a lot. And this, in, in researching Tim Raines, I was reading things about Tim Raines from... 1986 and came across a Peter Gammons article in Sports Illustrated about Reigns and Ricky Henderson as the two best leadoff hitters in the world and how they were just how they were changing the game with their base stealing. And it's a really great article. So there are two things in this Peter Gammons article that I really loved about his base stealing technique and acumen and how he approached it. The one of them, the fun fact though, which I don't even think is in the article, but it's in the Peter Gammons article. It, at the point in Reigns' career when he had, uh, when Gammons was writing about this, he had, sto- Reigns had stolen 434 bases 
434 bases. Now, sometimes he got picked off, but if you throw out the pickoffs where he then went on to try to take second base and was tagged out, he was only thrown out by catchers 32 times. So he stole 434 bases, had been thrown out by catchers 32 times, which is wild, right? Like that really makes you realize like that 90 feet was not far enough that yeah. to stop Tim Raines. He could go, and it was almost impossible for a catcher to throw him out. The only way he ever got thrown out was when he was picked off, probably usually by lefty pitchers, probably in a lot of cases because they balked, but whatever. It's long past time to litigate that. So I thought that was an incredible thing. 434 stolen bases thrown out by catchers 32 times. And he has a, a line in here, actually, that I had never really thought about. Um, which is that he never really took a big lead. He said that uh, he and Ricky both took fairly small leads, but I'm just going to read this. The running styles of both men show pure athletic skill. Neither takes a long lead. And then here's the Tim Raines quote. Diving back head first is too much of a pounding. For both Ricky and me, the jump is more important than the lead. And so that's an interesting thing to think about, that they that he took smaller, shorter leads because he didn't want to put his body through the um, process of having to dive back headfirst over and over and get injured. And he was still able to beat the catcher pretty much every time. And that is going to be something I think about when I see the whatever that stolen base tracker thing on Nesson yes. is. And uh, it tells me how long the guy's lead is. I don't know. I haven't, I haven't figured out what I'm going to think about when I see that lead. But I'm going to think about that. Yeah. Okay. That's a good one. Let's see. There was a uh, Howie Kendrick doubled today. Uh, Juan Soto scored a run as he was sliding into home. He slid into Howie Kendrick's bat, which Kendrick had dropped in the batter's box. And the announcer, the radio announcer at the time said something like, you don't see that very often. Usually the on-deck hitter will move the bat. We'll get the bat out of there. And um, I have uh, as a lot of people know i've watched hundreds i've deliberately watched hundreds of bat drops and the um throws home to see uh where the bat ends up um and after writing an article about that topic i have probably noticed thousands <laughs> since and so i would like to say that i'm kind of an expert on uh both where bats get dropped and also what happens to bats that get dropped in certain yep. places. And I acknowledge I'm here to, your, your expertise on that you. subject. <laughs> I'm here to tell you that uh, this is, I don't know, probably widely believed that sometimes the batter on deck moves the bat. It's not true. Never happens. The batter on deck does not move the bat. If, in Little League, he probably does because in Little League, the on deck circle is like eight feet away. But if you just think about the time that it would, you know, the time, you only have maybe six seconds before the throw's going to get home. It's hard to imagine that the guy on deck is running out, picking up the bat, throwing it clear, and then getting in position to tell the guy whether to slide or not. The guy on deck gets in position to say slide or no slide. He's Mm -hmm. not removing the bat. The bat almost never gets removed. Now, sometimes the umpire does move the bat. And I think a lot of people think the umpire always moves the bat. In fact, when I wrote about this, when I wrote about batters dropping the bat in front of the plate... I got people saying that this is a stupid article. The umpire always kicks it out of the way. The umpire almost never kicks it out of the way, but occasionally he does kick it out of the way. But the key thing here is that Howie Kendrick did do the worst possible thing. It's the opposite of what I wrote about. You do not want to drop the bat in your batter's box because the catcher is going to let it sit there and block your slide. That's actually what catchers want. In fact, I, as I wrote about, there's at least one catcher who will occasionally deliberately kick the bat into that area, and I have twice caught that catcher doing it, and I have gifts of it, but because he swore me to secrecy, 
I am not publishing those gifts. Someday I might. I don't know how long my vow of, of silence lasts. But just to be clear, because sometimes there's confusion about this, you want to throw the bat about six to eight feet in front of the plate. Uh, that way the catcher can't move it. The umpire's not going to bother with it. Uh, and it's right where a throw would bounce if it were coming in from the outfielder. Um, and you don't want to drop it right in front of the plate or in the right-handed batter's box because that makes it very hard for your runner to slide coming in. And that's what happened to Juan Soto. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I think that's it. All right. I have uh, one or two other things. Did you see? <laughs> is, I'm going to find one or two other things while you're doing this just to keep the gag going. <laughs> did you see that Max Scherzer celebrated the what he thought was the Nationals <laughs> yes. winning in the eighth inning? I didn't see it. I heard it. Yeah, it's great. It was on the. It was. Did you see that after the Howie Kendrick double that he dropped the bat and Juan Soto slid? (laughs) He did a show of pretending to do it again. Anyway, Uh (laughs) go ahead. So Scherzer thought the game was over in the eighth inning. Adam Eaton crossed the plate. Scherzer runs out. <laughs> Just the most awkward looking thing you can imagine. Cause... Show me. <laughs> okay. it's. <laughs> I will link to it so that everyone can watch because you should. And no one else walks out. It's like Soto <laughs> is out there and it's just Scherzer by himself just <laughs> extending a high five, doesn't get the high five, <laughs> is left hanging, ends up converting the high five into a butt slap. <laughs> then he gets back to the dugout. Everyone's laughing at him and he's like awkwardly pacing with a smile on his face in the dugout because he, uh, in in his defense, not that he really needs to be defended, this is kind of funny, but his wife had a daughter on Thursday, so he's got a, a newborn baby around. He's probably a little bit tired. He's got other things on his mind. He's got some, <laughs> some back tightness. And uh, <laughs> Sean Doolittle had come into the game in the eighth inning, the closer, so he was confused. He thought the game was over. Anyway, no one was, was upset about this. Of course, it's just funny. Brian Dozier said, that's Max. I mean, come on, man. The first time I've ever seen it, which is true. I don't think I can remember this this happening. And uh, everyone was like, that's Max. Brian Dozier said, that's Max. Howie Kendrick said, that's Max. Same article. There's just everyone saying, that's Max, even though he's never done this before. But no one was surprised that he did this. And I'm just wondering how, what combination of team lack of success and player lack of success at what point where's the threshold where something like this gets you (laughs) scolded instead of celebrated (laughs) gets you talked to and (laughs) criticized the the cranky columnist writes a cranky column about how the team's head isn't in the game because someone didn't know what inning it was Obviously not in this case because Max Scherzer's the best pitcher in baseball. He's coming off one of the best months arguably a pitcher has has ever had in recent memory at least. The Nationals have been winning. They won this game. They are currently the wild card leader. So everything is uh, going relatively well for Scherzer and for the Nationals. So of course everyone was saying that's Max. But if this had happened to say a New York Met right now it would be perceived in a completely different right of course it would be the team isn't focusing and Callaway's lost control and uh, Brody Van Wagenen's throwing chairs and everyone's distracted and the team is playing poorly and if the player were playing poorly then it wouldn't be oh that's Max it's funny it would be this guy's got to get his head in the game so where's the line where this goes from being endearing to something that you would get condemned for 
I think uh, this is a hard question to answer, and I think to have any hope of answering it, we have to first figure out when they say that's Max, what are they saying? What part of it is Max, and what does it represent about Max? Are they saying that's Max, his head's never in the game? Are they saying that's Max, he's overexcitable? Are they saying that's Max, he doesn't wait for the crowd, he just follows his heart? Are they saying that's Max? He's dumb. I don't think it's that one. He's not. No, no. Kendrick said uh, he's a great teammate. He has some okay. quirkiness about okay. him. But is that quirk? He wasn't doing it to be quirky. No, he just wasn't paying attention. So it could be like he's. I don't know. Sometimes you see it celebrated like a guy's head is so in the game that he yeah. doesn't know what's going on around him. Oh, which yeah. that's something that's that you would hear one. about Scherzer, yeah, because he's so intense on the mound. Yeah, but this is kind of the opposite of that. He's. he's it's not that he was so intensely focused on some aspect of the game that he missed the the obvious thing, which is the game wasn't over. Mm-hmm. I think in this case, he just wasn't paying that close attention, and he. Mm. He didn't have to be. He wasn't pitching or anything, so whatever. But I think they're just saying that uh, he's a little off kilter. I don't know. It's, you know, he's on the mound cursing at himself, and that's Max, and this this is a different manifestation of Max. But, you know, he's got two different eye colors. He's Max. That's Max. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) I'm going to say that he's, that that what they mean, I'm going to say that they're just saying it. (laughs) <laughs> they haven't really, really thought good. about what it and is about like Max. Yeah, they're just saying that. So they're just literally going that. That was Max. <laughs> right, like, who right. was that guy on the field? Oh, that's Max. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. Because <laughs> because we saw like and we wrote in the book right that uh, remember when there was that big uh, feud there was the fight on the stompers because uh, someone's wallet was misplaced and someone thought that the wallet was stolen and then yeah. someone found the wallet and yeah. they didn't think they had turned over the wallet quickly enough yeah. or it was very silly but I think the point that you it was probably you made in the book was that if this had happened early in the season when the team was winning. It would not have been a fight. There would not have been words exchanged. It would have just been, that's uh, whoever it was. <laughs> so it it wouldn't have been a problem. But because the team was struggling at that point, it was a problem. And that's not quite the same situation. But I think it's it's dependent on a lot of things. It's It's probably dependent on too many variables to answer this question in a neat way. Because it's dependent on how that player is playing, how the team is playing, generally how that player is liked or perceived mm-hmm. i mean you could be like the, the quirky there are guys who are not superstars who are valued for their quirkiness this isn't quite this is quirky i guess but yeah. it's also just you're not paying attention so. uh, yeah but he's also not in the he doesn't need to be in the game and yes so it, it right. helps that that's not his role and it helps that they won the game if they had yes. blown it in the top of the ninth and uh I think it would have it wouldn't have mattered because wherever the threshold is, they they're far below it here. I mean, it's like you say, it's Max Scherzer, one of the most awesome players in the game uh, for the hottest team in baseball. And so who cares? Right. Right. That's Max. Um, (laughs) But if you know, if it whatever scenario there was, it would probably be worse if it were a situation where I the one of the more embarrassing moments of the season for me when I was in with the Stompers was when there was a. Uh, one of one of our guys hit a line drive, and I I audibly exclaimed, and then it got <laughs> caught, and everybody looked at me like I was just like it was my first game watching baseball, uh-huh. and they actually uh, Schweig made some 
comment about like whether it's like saber metrics to like overreact to line drive outs <laughs> and it hurt it was very hurtful to me to it be actually in that is, situation. it is saber metrics to do that right it was <laughs> that's a, true it was i a good, said his ex good launch angle <laughs> good exit velocity <laughs> um but i think this was all good fun yeah i think that i think that anybody you name uh in baseball in any situation it would mostly be beloved. I like. I think that if I don't know, I think if the if an Oriole did this, it'd be charming. If a Red Sox did this, by the way, I don't know if an Oriole did it. I think it would be seen as as a sign of the apocalypse, as a sign do. of these guys are not major league quality players, and I I think that would be condemned probably. You do, uh, maybe. Yeah, I don't know. I think even if it were Scherzer, like if Scherzer had been in the game and he had forgotten how many outs there were or something and he threw to the wrong base and it proved to be a costly mistake and the Nationals lost the game or something, even Scherzer, you wouldn't have guys going, that's Max after the game probably because that would not be endearing. That's a different situation though because as you said, there's no cost to this. It's just a silly thing. It's embarrassing for him, but the Nationals didn't suffer for Scherzer for forgetting what inning it was the most interesting thing about it to me is that he went to to eaton the runner who scored and oh, yeah. uh, everything <laughs> comes down to once i wrote an article but i have written articles about how you celebrate uh walk-off errors which is a yeah. situation where the hitter is the least heroic he could possibly be and yet even then it is protocol to to go mob the hitter never the runner there's a, hardly ever any attention paid at all to the runner and it's mm-hmm. sort of odd that scherzer ran to the runner to the well, scoring runner. Maybe he was so out of the game, he forgot who was hitting and who was running. Uh, <laughs> he thought, yeah. Okay. All right. Sounds good. Sure. Should we talk about the topic today? <laughs> okay. All right. But first, I got to mention something on episode 1320. <laughs> I actually do. This I have one other thing, too. But... <laughs> <laughs> Come on. All right. You go. Okay. All right. So I think as we've been speaking, Yadier Molina has been leaving Instagram comments lambasting Jake Marisnik for the collision with Jonathan Lucre that mm. happened on Sunday, yeah. bringing this up now because it's timely. There were a, a couple of catcher injury-related news items on Sunday. The first was Marisnik just crashing into Lucre. It was a, an illegal collision, and he was ruled out. And to Marisnik's credit, he seemed remorseful after the play. He was hanging around the play, and he tweeted after the game that he feels awful about it. He hopes for the best for Lucre, but... Brad Osmus is agitating for a suspension. Yadier Molina is coming to Lucre's defense here. So catchers clearly upset about catchers getting hurt in a collision. On the same day, we got the news that Francisco Cervelli is done catching. He's had one too many concussions. I think he's had six, which is probably more than one too many. And he is now finished with catching. He's hoping to continue playing. I don't know whether he will be able to do that, but he has played corner infield before. Anyway, still a problem. Catchers get hurt. They get seriously injured, even though there are rules put in place to protect them, even though there's a seven-day injury list to get them out of the game so that they're not pressured to come back and play with concussions. Catchers still get concussions. They still get hurt. It's part of the hazard of playing that position. And Andrew, one of our listeners, brought up a point that I hadn't considered, which is he wonders, do you think this will be an important factor driving us toward a robot strike zone? 
Even if you still need a catcher to do other defensive stuff, they could be farther back and in less risk of getting hit by the bat, foul tips, etc. I think Cervelli's last concussion was from a a bat collision, not from a, a foul tip. And Andrew says, furthermore, I think MLB would want to get ahead of the issue so they don't end up like the NFL with many brain injured former players. And I think they have. They've made an effort to do that. But obviously, catchers are still getting concussions. So do you think this will be an impetus toward the robot strike zone, which we're probably heading toward anyway at some point in the not terribly distant future? But they could spin this for people who are upset about losing the human element that this is in part a safety measure to keep catchers from getting concussions. Oh, man. It's a good question. Yeah. I don't think probably it would be seen as the impetus. Mm -hmm. I could see it being used as a selling point. I think that this is a topic where uh, most uh, people have much stronger opinions about just sort of the top level issue of should we replace the umpires with a robot strike zone and you're probably while obviously catcher safety is a more important issue than accuracy of strikes called in a in a in a baseball world i think that it would definitely feel like you're making a massive change for Mm -hmm. something that most people watching would consider a very small most people don't realize that catchers are getting banged up the way that they are, I think. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it would, it would sort of would have a hard time selling this to the general public. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I'm probably labeling with a broad brush here, but I would guess that there'd be a lot of overlap between people who are pro-robot ump just because they like technology, they like progress, they want to make the game better or what they perceive to be better, and people who would care enough about catcher safety to actually change something major about the game to protect catchers whereas I think there would also be a lot of overlap between people who kind of reflexively want to preserve the human element for tradition's sake and people who will say we're protecting players too much and back in back in the day players would run into each other and that was just part of the game and now we're we're you know protecting everyone and taking it too easy on people i think that i'm in favor of human umpires because i i like the human element in terms of how it affects the strike zone and how it affects framing and i've talked about that before but people who are just sort of like i like the human element because there's always been a human element and tradition would also be not eager to change things in a major way to protect catchers because catchers getting hurt is kind of a a tradition too that's a staple of the game isn't it also fairly simple to just put a front of the catcher's box if you wanted to and you know recognize that that would probably make it harder for catchers to frame but that's not if you're the league office that's not your main priority the game will be the game it will be competitive and equal for both teams and so uh, as it is now i don't believe there is a front of the catcher's box I think the catcher's box is a horseshoe um, that goes uh, on the sides and behind him, and he could theoretically go as far as he wants up front. And with the incentives in place, they do, and they will continue to, and they might even do more and more. And so if if you're a league that wants to protect catchers from having to engage in this sort of race forward uh, into danger, then it seems like... The first step you do is simply draw a line and say you can't go in front of that and have a little bit more separation between the batters and the pitch uh, and the catchers. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I don't know how disruptive game, that would but, be. But yeah, okay. 
Well, that's it. You can get the last word on <laughs> banter 40 plus minutes into this episode. I'm just going to, uh, this is more of a segue, but you in episode 1320, you and Jeff were talking about Williams Astadio uh, with his- You don't say. <laughs> <laughs> with his wonderful home run pose. And mm-hmm. you talked about how there were people, you, you, you talked about how the idea that there were people out there who were mad about this was a straw man argument and in fact nobody was mad about this everybody loved it and jeff said uh you both agreed that the war over fun was largely over jeff said the conversation is over we have won the fun people have won and then in episode 1321 he talked about how williams astadio got the living daylight beamed out of him by the opposing team who did not think it was fun <laughs> and that was a good time for me to have listened backwards because i got mm-hmm. to listen to that whole second conversation first <laughs> anyway you talked about how a friend of yours had noted something very interesting, which is that the home run trot itself is an act of celebration, an act of self-aggrandizement. There's yeah. no actual reason to trot. Was this Will Woods? Yes, it was. All right. There's no reason to trot necessarily, but we give the batter a chance to to sort of uh, bask in the, the cheers of the people around him. Now, there's also the fact that he's probably already ran to first base before the ball is officially out and he has to go somewhere. So I don't know if I totally agree with Will, but... Uh, This goes to something that I have been thinking about a lot lately, which is the Home Run Derby, where you Mm -hmm. hit big dingers and you don't run at all. The Home Run Derby is Monday. I wrote an article that went up, I think, over the weekend and is up now that is a little bit of a piece of speculative fiction based on the premise, sort of, that one could imagine a next century where the Home Run Derby in a way, eats baseball, becomes more popular than baseball, or becomes a secondary sport entirely. And the reason I was thinking about this is because I started wondering, well, this last hundred years of the Home Run Derby's development, the rise from home runs weren't even really a thing, to now the Home Run Derby is a total star-making vehicle. I would say that plausibly Josh Hamilton had his career-defining moment in the Home Run Derby. I would say that uh, Aaron Judge has plausibly had his career-defining moment in the Home Run Derby. The Home Run Derby sometimes draws as many viewers as the All-Star Game itself. It's one of the most watched baseball events of the year. Um, And if we think about the Derby not as this interesting exhibition that has grown in popularity, but as we've been watching the origin story of a whole new sport, because it's not baseball. It's totally different than baseball. The only thing it has in common with baseball is that you swing a bat at a ball and try to hit it over the wall, but otherwise everything is very different. And you could imagine, perhaps, you could imagine those differences kind of diverging even more. You don't need to have a lot of the things that people don't like about baseball. Well, I don't know. I don't, I, I, I'm not going through this article in a very organized way. So now I'm kind of getting all over the place. But I wanted to bring it up partly because I just wanted to know what your relationship to the Home Run Derby is. Do you enjoy it? Do you feel different about it than you did when you were a kid? And is it something that you watch as a baseball fan? I completely tuned it out for a while there. I used to enjoy it as a kid. I did, just because it was fun to watch the the superstars hitting baseballs a long way. And, of course, one of the best parts, maybe the best part of the whole All-Star Week is just players hanging out on the field and watching the Home Run Derby. And sometimes they're mic'd up and sometimes they'll stop by the broadcast. And it's kind of casual and fun to see players with their families and just guys from all teams hanging out and being friendly in a way that we don't typically see them. So... 
after an initial period where I enjoyed watching that, I stopped watching for quite a while or I'd pay some peripheral attention but not really tune in unless I I just happen to have it on the background. And just with the new rules that they put in place in recent years, I've started paying attention again, but I wouldn't say it's a highlight of my baseball-watching summer, I don't think. I think it's a fun event because it happens once a year. (laughs) I don't think I could see it being something that I would enjoy as an alternative to baseball, as a standalone product. I think its rarity is really why it's so compelling, just because we don't really get to see guys try to hit home runs in this focused way and get served up meatballs to hit home runs for the sole purpose of doing that. We don't get to see that. And this is a time when we get to see guys who hit baseballs a long way, hit them the longest way. So I do enjoy it. And it's probably the best part of All-Star Week, unless you're a prospect person and you enjoy the Futures game. I think it's probably more fun than the All-Star game at this point, more compelling and maybe more potential for a landmark moment like Hamilton, like Judge, etc. But that's about as far as I would go with it. Yeah, I also have never been a huge home run derby watcher um, or enjoyer. And I think that the fact that both of us feel that way is part of why I think that it's it feels a little odd to think of this as a subset of baseball, of the baseball experience, because it's so very different from baseball. It doesn't really appeal to me in any of the ways that baseball appeals to me. It does appeal to me in ways that baseball does not appeal to me. And I'll get to those in a minute. But It is not a sport that you're going to want to live with every day. You don't want to see, obviously, you don't want to see 15 home run derbies a day (laughs) for six months. Right. And you don't like seeing home run highlights even. You're on record as, as thinking that home run highlights are boring in actual games when there are stakes and, and there's tension and it's an unexpected well, surprising yeah, event. I don't, like so. the, I don't like the highlights because in the highlights, it's not unexpected anymore. You pretty much know what but it's going to be. In a home be. run derby, it's never unexpected. Really. No, home run derby is a different thing. A home run derby, the what has appealed to me in, in recent years uh, is the suspense of it. I actually find it to be a pretty clear story. Like you don't, you can jump in and out at any given point. Uh, The rules are very simple. The conceit is very simple and the scoring is fairly simple. And so you turn it on and you have the the time element. You have a clock counting down, which I know you hate, but you do have a (laughs) clock counting down. You have a, a pretty clear competitive narrative. It is very fast paced, which is something that obviously is something that yes. baseball has now it is with. it didn't used to be <laughs> that's right it has gotten much better it's very fast-paced it is a great television i would say a great uh now that television i watched the old home run derbies the really old ones in the 60s but also some of the ones from the from the 90s and that the broadcasting technology just wasn't there like you didn't you were it was basically just like you were watching a guy swing and then someone was telling you whether it went out a lot of mm-hmm. times uh and now you have just this gorgeous cinematography for these home runs you have one of the great things about it is that there's no because there are no real foul balls because there are you know you don't have misses you can get really close you can have the players on the field like the players aren't just in the booth talking about what's happening they're on the field they could be a few feet away from it the so there's a feeling that you can get much closer to the get to the action than you do 
uh, anywhere else. And of course, there's, I mean, obviously it's not a sport. It's not a sport that is played full time uh, or anything like that. But uh, it's also nice that you don't have injuries. You don't have to even wear a helmet, let alone worry about the pitcher's Tommy John surgery, recovery or whatever. You don't have ball strike calls. You don't have that ambiguity of of umpiring, like that a lot of drives a lot of people crazy. You don't have like long at bats of foul balls, and you don't have strategies that aren't pleasing. Pretty much the only strategy for home run derby is to hit dingers, and that's <laughs> like what people want. There's mm-hmm. no like counterintuitive strategy that's horrible to watch, but like helps you win. It's just like dingers. You don't have relievers. They're all stars. Every one of them, superstar. And so in that way, it's kind of great. And so uh, just to be clear, this is not going to happen. Like the home run <laughs> derby is not going to be a big four sport, but there's a chance, right? I can envision it. I can see a plausible way that it happens. And I think that this year's home run derby, which we're going to watch tonight, marks that pivotal moment where we figure out whether this is going to be a sport or not, uh, because now you're going to have a million dollar prize that is more than some of the players in the home run derby are going to make this year. And that's yeah. a big difference, right? Mm-hmm. You have some real incentive now to get really good at this game. And uh, not probably if you're a major leaguer, not if you're like one of these young superstars, but you could imagine that there are probably players in the minors who could get really good at home run derby and wouldn't, may probably aren't going to get really good at baseball but could get really good at home run derby. And you could imagine that if the game, if the idea of a derby opened up, if it became more popular, if it got expanded just a little bit, and if we started seeing different types of players um, uh, like sort of specializing in derby to try to get that million bucks, it could, there is a way, I could envision a way that it would start to take off. And if it started to take off, then it could get really fun because Right now, you're right. You wouldn't want to watch this all the time. It would be boring. But if you were watching it all the time, they would have to innovate. They would have to start having a lot of different settings. They -hmm. would have to have a lot of different, probably, rules, types of derbies. There's no reason that you would have to be limited to a baseball field as we know it. You could have a home run derby in a desert. You could have a home run derby in the Grand Canyon. You could have a home run derby on virtual reality and put it on Mars. You could do anywhere you want and you can make it really interesting. Uh, You could have weird rules. You could have like all sorts of different styles. I'm probably not convincing anybody of this (laughs) and it's unlikely, I agree. Uh, But I can see it happening. I mean, the rise of the home run from basically not even a part of baseball 100 years ago, except as like a a very occasional thing, to central to the game's marketing, to where derbies themselves are in a lot of ways more memorable than the play, some of our most defining moments of every summer, has has been a kind of a steady progression. And we've now reached this point where there's real money involved and real popularity involved. And I'm looking at a world where like you have like American Ninja Warrior, which is basically like very good athletes, amateur athletes who have mastered the ability to do certain athletic feats in an urban setting, in an unconventional setting. And it's showcased television on prime time. And it doesn't happen, you know, 2,430 times a year like baseball does, but it's a huge success. Uh, in the in a limited run and I could sort of see it like I can I can envision it so not gonna happen but I could envision it 
Mm-hmm. Well, I think Mike Pesca has expressed the opinion, I think on the gist, that what we want out of sports, what we find most entertaining in sports is basically something flying through the air a mm-hmm. very long way. Mm-hmm. So we like the the deep Hail Mary pass, the, the touchdown pass in football. We like three-pointers in basketball. We like home runs in baseball. And so if you think that home runs are compelling, that things flying through the air is fun, then Home Run Derby has a leg up there. I would say the fact that Home Run Derbies go back a long way and haven't made any major inroads when it comes to becoming a standalone sport. Oh, that, wow. That probably argues against them. See, I, mean, I feel the exact opposite. I feel that all the evidence suggests that it has made major inroads. It was, it was, such, I mean, it was the first Home Run Derby in 1985 wasn't even televised. They didn't televise it for seven years, for maybe nine years yeah. before they started televising it. They were, they were these, they were these sort of things that you would do you know, before charity exhibition games. They would be things that Babe Ruth would do when he was barnstorming. They would but be... that's still what it is. It's an exhibition once a year. Uh, well, once a year, but it's a massively popular thing. More people will it watch is, this yeah. than will watch any regular season game, for sure, and probably any any game other than the All-Star game in the World Series. Yeah, I, I guess so. I mean, it's been in its current form for, what, 25 years or so that it's been broadcast in something like the modern way. And I guess it's maybe more popular now than it used to be, or at least than it was like a few years ago. I don't know how it compares to many years ago. And obviously the broadcasts have gotten better and clearer, but that's true for all sports. So I don't know if TV, probably TV has benefited the home run derby more than just regular baseball. But I don't know if you go back and look at grainy black and white footage of regular baseball games, that doesn't look so so great either. It was what you had at the time, so mm-hmm. you took it. But I think it has had star making moments or star cementing moments, which is very true. I think that It's always kind of a secondary thing, though. I mean, that may be what you remember about Aaron Judge or Josh Hamilton, but you really remember it because of what they do outside of the Home Run Derby. Mm -hmm. And they attain the status to be in the Derby because they were, you know, an MVP caliber player beyond that. And this was maybe the moment that best distilled their talent. But on its own, if they had just, well, if they had just wandered in off the street, then then that would have made them a star too. And that's something that you speculate about in your article, that maybe eventually it gets to be the type of thing where you just have home run derby specialists and it's not even major leaguers anymore. It's just people who practice the home run derby swing. And you can imagine that people who practice that in a focused way could get good at it. I think It'd probably be harder to do that than like free throw shooting. I think it's just an inherently harder act to perform. Mm -hmm. You have to be pretty strong to hit even a, a BP ball out of a field and... Also, there are just more variables. I mean, you know, there's a a pitch coming in and it's moving and there's environmental conditions and distractions and free throw shooting. It's just kind of you and a ball and the same condition. The hoop is not moving. So I think it would be harder to master. But I think baseball became like the national pastime really quickly. It, it It took off very quickly, whereas Home Run Derby has not taken off very quickly i would say maybe it's made some inroads but it's not on a trajectory where i would look at it and extrapolate and say 
we're heading toward a future where this will be a dominant sport, which I know you're saying is unlikely, but maybe you can make a case that the million dollar prize and where we go from there, that could be a, a pivotal moment where that changes things. Yeah, I think that the the money would that what I would see driving it would basically be three things. One is the money getting bigger, which I, this is why I think this is such a pivotal year because I think that if if a young player wins it, and in particular, I part, step two of this process is we somehow have to get minor leaguers into it in my how this could happen thing. And so uh, I think that seeing a, a, a kid making $30,000 win a million dollars, I think that has a, a long history of being crowd pleasing on television. So I'm thinking that the three, anyway, the three factors, one is the money needs to get really, really big. Mm-hmm. Two is that the winners need to start being like not famous baseball players, but mm-hmm. they need to, maybe some of them would be famous baseball players, but otherwise that probably would, would they would have to be a, a new pop, uh, athlete population pool. And mm-hmm. the third thing would be that those athletes would have to be even better at it. They'd have to be able to do things with Derby that players today have heretofore not been able to do and right uh that might not be possible it might be yeah. that aaron judge is the best derby player in the world because all you can do is hit more dingers yeah <laughs> or, or farther dingers i guess but more dingers mostly though more, yeah, dingers. more dingers and at a certain point more dingers probably not more entertaining well you mentioned the a hypothetical of a guy who hits homers on what a hundred something consecutive swings and Maybe that's fun because the tension ramps up every time. But if it were just every hitter is hitting 30 per round or something instead of whatever they're hitting, then it would just take a lot longer. And and you have the time limits put in place to prevent that, really. So I'm yeah, not sure that's maybe. more entertaining. Maybe. The other thing is I'm that, imagining a lot more variety in these games. Yeah. But maybe. That's the thing. I mean, A, I think there will be more money if there's a bigger audience, right? If if the audience is there to make this an event that can support an enormous price, then that will happen. And if it doesn't, then maybe that suggests that the audience isn't there for it. I don't know. But the other thing is that to make it more compelling, the inclination maybe is to make it more challenging, to make it harder to add obstacles. Oh, yeah. And yet that then maybe makes it less entertaining, right? Because isn't the thing that we like about the Derby is that we get to see lots of dingers? So if you just make it harder, now if you put it in the Grand Canyon or something, yeah, that's that's fun just because it would be fun to see baseballs hit in that setting, just like it's maybe fun to see evil can evil jump over something. But I don't know that making it harder actually makes it more entertaining because then you're reducing the pool of players who could do it and you're just translating to fewer diggers, which is the opposite of what we want. Ben, that's a good that's a good objection. That is true. That's mm. something that that Derby's brain the the brain people, the, <laughs> the brain the brain folks at Derby are gonna <laughs> have to spend a lot of time on. Yeah. because uh, that is true. That could that could be a real obstacle. Yeah. Yeah, look, not gonna happen, probably. But I I think that yeah sure I agree I think that uh, the uh, rise of the Derby uh, is 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 very interesting I think that there's a a lot to the last hundred years that that show continued growth 
and expansion and movement towards something that we relate to in a very different way than we relate to in baseball. And so I'm mostly just interested to see where it goes from here. I, I think that it could possibly be that, that that home run derbies have a an interesting future ahead of them. feels more likely to me that, that they would uh, change and adapt and become somewhat bigger than they are now than that they're going to suddenly go away. Uh, or mm-hmm. not, or not so suddenly go away because it yeah. feels like right now baseball, the derby in a way feels more durable. Nah, that's it. Uh, that's going too far. <laughs> well, we like strongman competitions. We like feats of strength, and this is that basically. So. I do think, I mean, people are fascinated with who has the longest drives on the PGA Tour and who has the the longest home runs. So I think as long as that's the case, it makes observation that we like to see stuff fly through the air a really long way. I I don't think that will change. So I think the Derby's place is secure, but I don't know that it has the potential. It's just not complex enough. It's just, it's so simple. Well, the three the three things that I kept thinking about when I imagined Derby having a moment of like massive cultural phenomenon status mm-hmm. uh, that could then propel it to innovate and get different and big and wild in ways that we can't imagine. The three things that I kept thinking about were A, who wants to be a millionaire? Remember when mm-hmm. we were watching Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? And it was like the biggest show in the country like yeah. it was the number one show and they were airing it five nights a week on prime just time. got canceled very recently and it took 20 some years <laughs> yeah and um and that's a that's a dang quiz show mm-hmm. and a slow one at that yeah. so anyway i thought about who wants to be a millionaire i thought of joey chestnut and the eating a lot of hot dogs yeah. um which of course is not that's a even a competitive eating i guess is a got a whole schedule and a whole tour but that's a one time a year thing but i mean that's way less likely to me than home run <laughs> derby uh and the third was american ninja warrior uh which i thought that you could produce in a lot of the same ways mm-hmm. so those are things that are i don't know all of those have reasons that you'd go well how would that appeal to 30 million people um and in various ways that they all have but yeah I mean, if you put enough money at stake, then people will probably watch anything. People will tune in to watch someone flip a coin if there were millions of dollars at stake, especially if it were you, because you claim to be able to tell by the sound by the of sound, how it lands. I gotta work on that. <laughs> but I would watch if if it were a twenty million dollar prize for heads or tails. <laughs> I'd watch. That'd be compelling to me, even though there's no skill involved and it's very simple. That's something I would watch just to see like the human drama of someone either winning a lot of money or being disappointed that they didn't win a lot of money and having their life changed or not having their life changed. So if you put enough money into something, then I'd probably watch it at least once, certainly. I just think that even with American Ninja Warrior, like the whole thing is this is so hard. How do they do this? Let's keep making the obstacles even harder. Mm. And then it will be just awe-inspiring that they're able to complete the course. Whereas in Derby, it's still just like that 70-mile-per-hour fastball that's just laid in there so you can hit a home run. It's true, although you do. I don't know if you've you've read my (laughs) future Derby article, but uh, I did imagine that one of the things that one of the rules could each round if it there's no reason you need a pitcher it could be off the pitching machine and each mm-hmm. round could you could jack up the velocity until they're having to hit dingers on 135 miles an hour 
Right. Be pretty fun. Well, then it would be too would... hard. You think it'd be too hard. You well... think there wouldn't be dingers. You think if the whole point is that I'm selling the availability <laughs> of dingers to a dinger thirsty audience, and right. then I'm trying to take away their dingers to, to promote drama. I agree. It's tricky, but I don't know. Doesn't every sport have that? We watch horses run for two minutes. Horses. <laughs> I don't know anything about horses. Yeah. They run. Well, that's what they do. They're horses. They're all horses. <laughs> well, that's declined dramatically in popularity. So, and we only watch it like once a year or maybe three times a year for two minutes and that's it. Did you, you probably didn't play the July 4th Google Doodle last week because you were probably not in a place to play it. But I did I, not. Yeah. So there was a baseball themed Google Doodle for July 4th, and it's like a backyard baseball barbecue type game. I think you can probably still go play it. And it was basically derby, more or less. It was like you take swings, and there are various food items, and and the peanuts are the fielders. And basically, you're just taking swings, and for some reason, you hit the ball like 800 feet. And the whole thing is derby, basically, because the peanuts... I guess they don't have hands, and so they can't field the ball even when it's hit right at them. So even if you hit a ball right at a peanut, it's just a single or a double or whatever. And the whole thing is just kind of timing your swing to see if you can hit homers 800 feet. And that's just about it. And so you rack up runs, essentially, and you know you score 30 runs or whatever, and there are three strikes. And the strikes carry over across the batters. It's a very strange game. It doesn't really resemble real baseball, but... Once you start getting up into the the high run totals, they do make it harder, and they have like this one guy who comes in throwing a fastball that's very difficult to hit, and that's tough to time because the other balls are very easy to hit, and at that point, it becomes less fun, I think, (laughs) (laughs) because you're not hitting diggers 800 feet, and the whole thing is just dinger hitting because there's no fielding, there's no base running or anything. And so I played the game a few times and then I got tired of it because (laughs) that was kind of all it was. It was, am I clicking the mouse at the right time to hit this ball or not? That is basically derby for me. It was fun once. I'd play it a few times a year, but I wouldn't devote a lot of my time to it. Can we just end with the other great fun fact from my Mike Trout Hall of Famers past in June article, which uh, most people know this fun fact, but it still blows my mind, and I wish it were on the YouTube. It's not on YouTube. I cannot find it. But in 1990, Ryan Sandberg won the Home Run Derby with a total of three home runs. (laughs) He out-homered the other seven combined. Yes. (laughs) The whole Home Run Derby. Now, this wasn't on TV, mercifully, but the whole Home Run Derby the whole afternoon had five dingers. Yeah. <laughs> you said it was at Wrigley and the wind was blowing in, right? That's that, was, that, that is that is the lore around yeah. this performance. That's not a good derby. <laughs> <laughs> I have only one question about this article where you trace the, the future history of the Home Run Derby oh, more than 100 years into the future. How did you decide that Aaron Judge's great-great-grandson would be named Han Judge? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> is is that is Star Wars so popular that, that in the future that kids you, are just getting named Han? Did how many? You how many? That out of nowhere? Yeah. How many? How many Star Wars would you? Get, how many Star Wars feature films do you think there will be in a hundred years? There will oh, be gosh. more than a hundred, right? No, I don't think so. I think there will be dozens, but I don't think they're because uh, they've cut back on them already. I think you're you'll you'll get one every three years. 
maybe two years. Wait, you're counting these little like the little spinoff ones, the Star Wars stories? Yeah. Okay. And yeah. okay. They make there are like parallel Spider Man series going on sometimes. <laughs> I, I just feel like we're at a point now where intellectual property does not does yeah. not shrink. Yeah. Well, Star Wars, they actually have uh, dialed it back a bit. I think they realized that they went a little too far with I don't, the, the Solo I movie. Don't th- I thought Solo was the best one yet. <laughs> I thought it was great. Yeah. <laughs> but, but audiences did not agree, at least to the same extent. One other thing we didn't mention about the Home Run Derby, we didn't mention one of the most entertaining parts, which you also wrote an article about, which is the kids shagging flies. Yeah. <laughs> so that's another thing that's great about the Home Run Derby that has I wrote, I wrote an article. I wrote an article two years ago mm-hmm. about who would ca- who would catch more fly balls. Yeah, did twenty five kit home run derby kids mm-hmm. shaggers or Byron Buxton? Right, and <laughs> and I uh, concluded it was Buxton. Yeah, they're very poor at this. <laughs> yeah. They not only do they not space out, which is a bad <laughs> strategy. They should space out. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's really it's crazy because they all they're all in a group. It's like when you're picking your final four. In a in a big pool with like six hundred people, it just doesn't do to pick chalk. You gotta you gotta mm-hmm. zig if you're gonna win. And I the, like a fair. If you watch the home run derby tonight, you will see a fair number of balls are gonna be pop ups to right field, and there's not gonna be anyone standing there. Yeah. Um, and the truth is, even if it's hit right at you, if you're playing in a pack of nine and it's hit right at you. And you somehow are in position to catch it, shagging kid, you're still probably going to drop it. And then there's eight people who are going to pick it up before you do. So Mm -hmm. go get a lonely place where you can fail without anybody competing with you. That's basically what my life's mission is. Go somewhere (laughs) alone where no one will see you fail and no one will compete against you. (laughs) Anyway, Byron Buxton has more range as well. Uh, All that stuff. Yeah. All right. Enjoy the home run derby, everyone. (laughs) Enjoy it before it's uh, the biggest sport in America. They should all, I mean, you should be able to shag. Like, you ought to be, there should be a lot more people shagging. You ought to be able to shag, in my opinion. (laughs) Just just anyone? (laughs) Like, everybody. It should be a rock concert. It should be like going to see, like, like Pearl Jam. It can't be more dangerous than being in a big pit of people jumping around. That's pretty dangerous. (laughs) Bosh pit? Yeah, and they let him do it. It's a safety hazard. The one time I went to CPGB, my friend was uh, doing like a battle of the bands there, and I went to see him, and he went to the mosh pit after he was done, and he got kicked in the face and just like completely knocked to the floor. Was that Will Woods? It was not. Different friend. But look, no, Ben, look, here's the thing. These guys are going to go out there, and they're going to hit, like, you know, say say they're going to hit 500 balls. And 250 of them are going to land in the bleachers, and 250 of them are going to land in the field. And for the 250 that land in the bleachers, they're going to pack in as many people as they possibly can. And those people are going to fight for those 250 balls. But then for the 250 on the field, they're like, nope, only the son of corporate sponsors. That's it. Why not let more people down there? Why not fill it up just like you would the bleachers? If it's safe in the bleachers, it's safe in left field. Okay. Maybe shagging flies at the Home Run Derby will be the next dominant sport. Could be. Okay. That Yeah, could be. Oh, my gosh. I do, like, uh, teach Sunday school, and kindergartners love three flies up. That is the sport that's <laughs> going to take over the world. Seriously, 100 years from now, the four big sports are going to be soccer, derby, ultimate frisbee, three flies up. <laughs> okay. All right. You heard it here first and last. <laughs> 
All right, I wanted to read one more listener response to something Sam and I recently spoke about. It's kind of mathy, so I figured I'd stick it here. This is from Ryan. He says, The listener email from episode 1399 got me thinking about whether strong, weak, or median link players were most important for a team. I realized it would be pretty easy to assemble into a spreadsheet to answer with data. I went to Baseball Reference and pulled the top 10 position players listed along with the top four starters and the closer. I did fudge it a handful of times when one person should clearly belong ahead of another. I then took their baseball reference war and I identified the top player, the bottom player, and the median player. Then I ran four regressions, one for each, and then three measures together as explanatory variables for total wins in 2018. Sam's intuition, I think both of our intuitions, was correct that the median link is the most important. The R-squared for the best player war was 0.35, for the worst player war was 0.19, and for the median player war was 0.65. I also calculated effect sizes for the multivariate specification, a one standard deviation increase in the best player war, corresponds to a 0.35 standard deviation increase in team wins, a one standard deviation increase in worst player war corresponds to a 0.2 standard deviation increase in wins, and a one standard deviation in median player war corresponds to a 0.62 standard deviation increase in team wins. That was a lot of mentions of standard deviation and multivariate regressions. The point Ryan is conveying there is that the data does seem to support the idea that baseball is a median link sport. Of course, I don't think he repeated the analysis to see how other sports stack up, but that passes the sniff test for me. You can go get my book. It's called The MVP Machine, How Baseball's New Nonconformists Are Using Data to Build Better Players. If you've gotten it, if you've read it, if you've liked it, Please leave a review on Amazon and Goodreads. It helps us out. Tell a friend. Give it as a gift. Any good word of mouth is appreciated. You can also support this podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. Following five listeners have already signed up to pledge some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going and get themselves some perks. Jay Augsburger, Justin Compton, Dustin, John Scolds, and Chris Campen. Thanks to all of you. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can contact me and Sam and Meg via email at podcast.fangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you're a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance, and we will be back with another episode soon. Talk to you then. Hey.